Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 19 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. I know it's been quite a gap between episode 18 and episode 19. I've been doing a number of things, updating the website, writing a couple of new papers, doing some more research, some of which you'll see in today's um, episode. So like all the other episodes, my goal is to keep today's version somewhat accessible, and which means we're going to talk about a lot of concepts and try and keep the math somewhat to a minimum. What are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about the meaning behind the moving systems equations of Newton, Lorenz, Einstein, as well as the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. So far we've avoided talking about that, and I've done that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I didn't want the interpretation to get in the way of what we were showing mathematically. I felt that the math results would be able to speak for uh, on their own, and it would be uh, easier to show something that's quantitatively different, i.e. mathematically different, without having to re rely on some sort of subjective interpretation. So that's part of the reason why I didn't want to talk about what things meant before. But why now? Well, we've accomplished those goals. We've talked about what the problems were mathematically. We've shown that the CICS equations produce uh, equal or better results for a certain class of experiments. And now we've arrived at a point where we have to say, okay, so what does it mean? What are the concepts behind what we've been talking about? And in the process, we're going to do a couple of things. So today, we're going to look at the meaning of moving systems equations. We're going to look at what problems were actually being solved by Newton, Lorenz, and Einstein. And more importantly, at the end of today's conversation, I hope that you have an understanding for what relativity is all about, what time dilation is about, what length contraction is about, where their origins are, why Einstein reached those conclusions, and why they are important for his interpretation. But we're also going to explain why the CICS model approaches it differently and comes up with different conclusions. So whether you're a proponent of special relativity or a challenger, I hope that you get a lot out of today's uh, conversation. Now we're going to break the conversation into three parts. The first part is going to talk about transformations. The second part is going to talk about wavelength and frequency. And then the third part, we're going to put everything all together and talk about the various moving systems models. So first, with respect to transformations, when you look at how transformations are handled in the various uh, physics textbooks and how Einstein and Lorenz and others um, dealt with it, they just call everything a transformation. And that's very similar to just calling every tall building a high-rise. Well, if you're an investor, you might want to know whether that high-rise is a residential high-rise, whether it's a mixed-use high-rise, a retail high-rise, or an office building. All of those might affect your decision and what you do. You will approach the situation differently than just calling it a high-rise. In a similar way, we now need to to distinguish between the different types of transformations that are out there. Just calling everything a transformation will get us into trouble because we will mix different things up. So what we have to do is look at different types of geometric transformations. And there are three main ones that we want to talk about today. Rotation, translation, and scaling. Now when we talk about them today, our goal is not to go through all the math behind it. If you're interested in the math, there's a great book out there called Computer Graphics, and it's by a couple of authors. The two primary authors are Foley and Van Dam, and it's a great book. 
and it has a number of chapters that talk about uh, two-dimensional, three-dimensional transformations, projections onto multiple coordinate systems. It's really a good book. What I want to do today is to show you conceptually what these things are and how they play in our analysis of moving systems. So the first one that we want to look at is rotation. Rotation is straightforward. It's basically changing the orientation of something in a coordinate system. So in this case, we've taken our, our spaceship and we've uh, rotated at 90 degrees. Now the key thing to remember here is that the shape and size of the object has remained the same. We've just changed its orientation. The second one we want to look at is translation. Translation is really changing position of an object within a coordinate system. So in this particular case, we've moved the, the rocket over to the right, but its size and shape is the same as is its orientation. The third one that we want to look at is scaling. And scaling changes the size of the object. So it, it's in the same place, but it is, uh, and it has the same orientation. However, it, its size is, is different. And this is a very important one. So when we look at the three, rotation, translation, and scaling, rotation comes into play if you're assessing something like the Michelson and Morley experiment. However, we're not really going to focus on that today. Translation and scaling, however, do come into play, and we are going to talk about both of those today. Now, one thing I should add about the various translations again, something we're not going to cover, but it is covered in some of the textbooks that are out there, is that you can combine all of these and you can do one transformation that has a scaling component, a rotation component, a translation component, maybe multiples of those, and that's all fine and there's a whole lot of supporting math behind it. Again, our goal today is not to do all of that math, I just want to give you a feel for the three types of, of primary transformations that are out there. Now having said that, there's something we have to do, and this is why I wanted to make a distinction between the types of transformations, because if we don't make the distinction, we might confuse ourselves. We might confuse, for example, translation with scaling. Now just because mathematically we're able to perform an operation on them and we get the same result, in this case 4, the reality is by looking at the picture you can see that we actually did two different things. One of them moved our rocket to another position in space in our coordinate system. The other one uh, changed the size of our rocket. So, so the types of transformations are, are done to do two different things or multiple different things and it's very important that we not get them confused. Okay, a couple of key points that I want to hit on here, and some of these are in the, the bullets for each of the slides that I, I did not hit on, but uh, they're there for your review. And that is, with respect to uh, the three types, translation you can typically spot because it has an addition or subtraction operator as its main operator. Um, scaling uses multiplication or division as its main operator, and rotation typically uses sine and cosine. So those are, are things that we can um, look at. The other thing that we'll talk about a little bit later on is the difference between uh, how you might transform a static measure um, versus, for example, for example, seven miles versus how you might transform a rate like seven miles per hour and we will use different types of transformations depending on what we're trying to do. 
So now what we like to do is talk about frequency and wavelength. And for some of you who have, have um, gone through the earlier presentations and watched the Michelson-Morley material, some of this may, be, may sound a little bit familiar to you. So the two main things that we need to define are frequency and wavelength. And there is a one-to-one -one relationship between these two um, uh, features. But what we want to do today is just define them. So frequency is defined as the number of cycles that occurs in some amount of time. Now we've standardized that amount of time to be one second. And that's what we call hertz, and we express frequency as hertz. So for example, if you're listening to a radio station on FM 92.7 megahertz, that's because there are that many cycles per second of that particular radio wave. It's, it becomes a standard. Wavelength tells us how long does it take to complete, or not, not in time, but what's the distance of one cycle of a frequency. And again, there is a one-to-one -one relationship between frequency and wavelength. But this is very important because both of these are rates. One is per second and the other is per cycle. Now let's see why this is important. It's important because we have to treat them as rates. We cannot treat them as specific counts or as a specific measure of distance. Let me show you an example. Let's go back to our Michelson-Morley experiment. We have a light source, and away from that light source is a mirror 300 million meters away. We, we pick this particular distance because 300 million meters is how far light will travel within one second. So that means when we have a light wave of frequency f, we happen to know that there are uh, f cycles between our light source and the mirror. Now, when that gets reflected from the mirror back to the light source, we also have another F cycles coming back. So when we were to count the number of cycles, it, they would be doubled. We would have two F cycles. But two F cycles occurs over two seconds. It took a second to get to the mirror and another second to get back. So if we were to use two F as our answer in our equations, we are no longer talking about Hertz because Hertz is defined as one second. So we need to convert it back to Hertz and we do that by taking the average and, um, and that's how we address um, frequency. So it's very important to know how frequency is counted versus just counting number of cycles and why that's important. It comes into play when you're comparing frequencies to another. In a similar way, wavelength behaves the same way. So let's say that between the light source and the mirror we have a frequency of one hertz. So there's one cycle that occurs between the light source and the mirror. It gets reflected back from the mirror and we have another cycle that comes back. So if we were to count the total number of meters, there has been 600,000 meters traversed. But 600,000 meters occurs over two cycles, not one. Wavelength is an expression of one cycle. So again, just like frequency, we have to take the average, or in this case, divide by two, in order to come up with our value of wavelength, which still remains unchanged at 300 million meters per second. So it's very important to distinguish this because if you don't true that up, if you don't recognize that you're dealing with rates, you will run into trouble mathematically down the road, and that's what we've discussed previously uh, with respect to the Michelson-Morley uh, original algorithm, something that they did not account for. 
So why is this important? Why did we talk about rates and why did we talk about frequency? Well, when we look at frequency and wavelength, the primary trans transformation that we want to use is called scaling. So it's what will allow us to stretch this um, or compress it in much the same way you would stretch a, a rubber band or perhaps play an accordion where you can pull it in or, or, or push it in or pull it apart. When we look at moving systems models, there's really four things that we need to be able to explain. The first is, what happens to frequency or wavelength if everyone is stationary? The sender is stationary and the receiver is stationary. That's quadrant one, and we call that the reference system. Now, I've also put in there that that, is, that will also meet our definitions for a complete coordinate system, but that's not the goal of what we're going to talk about today. The second thing that we want to, to look at is when one of the um, observers is moving and the other one isn't. So either you have a stationary sender and moving receiver, which is quadrant two, or you have a moving sender and stationary receiver, which is quadrant three. All of those will have some form of frequency scaling. Now we refer to that in, in modern terminology as Doppler shifts. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Now the fourth quadrant, which is where you have a moving receiver and a moving sender, this is where the moving systems models come into play, and this is going to be treated differently by each one of, of the major models. And again, we'll be talking about each of those models and how they address quadrant four um, in the third part of our, of our conversation today. So having said that, I do want to show you an example of scaling. Um, and, and so the first example is we have a moving receiver, but the sender is stationary. You can see that the wavelength or gets longer, the frequency gets smaller, um, and, and that's viewed as a Doppler shift. And you can experience this by you know standing next to a train track as a train is approaching or receding from you and, and listening to the horn and, and noticing the change in pitch. That's a Doppler shift. You experience that all the time. So the wavelength is just getting, or the frequency and the wavelength are just getting scaled. Now, when you have both the mover and the, the sender and the receiver both moving, you still have a shift. However, it is not nearly as pronounced as the Doppler shift when only one of them is moving. And this is the, and so we do have to make sure our math and our models will explain both of these cases. So key things I'd like you to take away from, from the conversation on frequency and wavelength. Number one, we have to get our units right. We have to recognize that we're dealing with rates. So wavelengths are meters per cycle, which is different than just saying meters. Frequency is cycles per second, which is different than just saying cycles or the number of cycles. So we have to make sure we get our units right. That's going to be critical in making, in making sure our algorithms or our equations work the right way. We scale rates. Again, you can stretch it like a rubber band or play it like an accordion. So that's what we can do with frequency and wavelength. And we have to look at all the cases when either the receiver or the sender is in motion and when both the sender and receiver are in motion. And we'll do that with the various moving systems models. So in this section, we're going to look at the meaning behind each of the models. We're going to look at what Lorenz did, what uh, Newton did, what Einstein did, and we're going to look at the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. And, and we're going to see what questions are they designed to answer and how do they go about answering them. So Newton answers the question, 
How does position change with the application of velocity and the passage of time? So again, this the type of transformation he uses is called a trans translation transformation, and we know that because the primary operation is addition or subtraction. So when we see that, we can go translation. It's basically moving something in the coordinate system. One thing to note about Newton's approach is that it works with static measures. It, so when you say, I'm moving from the 7-mile mark, I'm now at the 15-mile mark, um, that is an example of the Newtonian approach. So it works with static measures. Now let's look at what Lorenz did. Lorenz answers a slightly different question. He, he answers, how does something that oscillates, such as frequency or wavelength, change with the application of velocity? So he takes an original frequency, let's say it has frequency x, and then he scales that so that now it has a perception of being frequency x prime. So if you're the receiver and, and, and you, you hear or see or observe a certain frequency, you are now observe, observing it at x prime. And that's a result of, of your motion or someone's motion. And if only one thing is moving, we today call that a Doppler shift. So again, this is something that can be observed. The key thing to recognize is that this is performed, this is a scaling operation that's performed on rates. And we say, for example, we don't say 10 meters, we say 10 meters per cycle, which is an expression of wavelength, becomes 15 meters per cycle, which again is an expression of wavelength. So there is a distinction between what Newton did and what Lorenz did because they answered slightly different questions. Both important, but different. Now let's look at what Einstein did. Einstein first makes an assumption, and it's an unstated assumption in, in his paper, that there is some sort of rocket ship at, at or, or something out at position X. So we'll show that. Now I say it's an unstated translation. Um, you don't need to have that translation part. It's th that's not the important part. The important part is to recognize that there is something out at position X because the first thing that Einstein does state is he does a translation. He, so again, this is something that's done on a measure and he moves it basically back to the origin. So he tells us a value called X prime. Now by doing that, you can see behind the rocket ship, there is this little wavelength thing. Now what that wavelength symbol is, is that's X prime. What Einstein has in effect done is he says, okay, X prime is now my frequency or, or my wavelength, depending on which way you want to view the world. Let's call it the, the wavelength. Einstein then does his operation and comes up with his math model and he scales wavelength. Okay, that's fine. He scaled wavelength, but remember, first he thought he was working with length. Now he's doing math on wavelength. And it gets confusing because when he's all said and done, he believes that he's dealing with length again. So there's a couple of things that, that you can see from number five. Number one, um, we've had a nomenclature name. So what we used to call X prime, we now call L. What we used to call xi, we now call, call L sub p. Um, these are used when people talk about length contraction. Those are the values that they're talking about. So there's some confusion because they're mixing a scaling operation that's performed on a rate with a trans 
translation operation that's performed on a measure. So they're confusing those two and they're coming up with this concept of length contraction. And the thing that I find interesting about this is when they have this discussion, they completely fail to ignore or completely fail to acknowledge that when all of this began, the rocket ship was actually at point X. So we, we actually have lost ground using this particular method. Um, but it is confusing because they're converting, um, they're mistreating a scaling operation that works on rates with a translation operation that works on measures. And so that's part of why Einstein concluded what he did, because he didn't realize this was going on. And if you don't realize that this is going on, you can reach the conclusions that Einstein reaches. Now, Einstein makes a very important assumption. He says when both the sender and the receiver are moving, nothing changes. So the frequency really hasn't changed. Well, that has to be explained somehow. If, you, if the frequency is changed, because we know mathematically it does, but you say it hasn't, well, that has to be explained. Einstein explained it via time dilation and length contraction. That's how he goes about explaining it. Mathematically and visually, you can see where length contraction comes into play, why it is that way, why people believe um, something is getting smaller. Let's look at time dilation. Time dilation, um, again, we're going to look at Doppler first because Doppler, no one believes that time dilation is going on. So let's look at what's going on. From the point of view of the receiver, the little red dot at the, the front of the, the spaceship, he believes that the frequency is getting lower because, or he's observing a lower frequency or a longer wavelength. That's true. That's exactly what he's seen. No one interprets that as time dilation. The same thing will happen when you have a receiver and sender who are in motion, just not as pronounced, but you will still have a change in the frequency. What happens though in either case? If you felt the person in the spaceship shouldn't have observed a change, they should be observing the exact same frequency. Again, let's look at the top case. If that person is, is believes they are observing the exact same frequency, it's changed, but they believe they're observing something different, you have to explain that. The way you explain that is the time for each wavelength to complete got longer, which means my time must be running slower. My clock must be running slower because my time piece has to still tick at the same amount of time for me to believe I'm observing the same frequency. That's where the concept of time dilation comes from. It's, it's a result of us observing a change in frequency, but, it, but telling ourselves frequency hasn't changed. And if frequency hasn't changed, what has changed? Time. That's the source of time dilation. Now, the model of complete and incomplete coordinate system is different from Einstein's model in a couple of ways. Number one, we recognize that there are two transformations that are going on. One, scaling deals with things that are rates, like frequency and wavelength. The other, translation, deals with things that aren't rates, like the position of the spacecraft. So both of these come into play because they're designed to answer different questions. So those are, are two key takeaways. Now the other key takeaway that I think is really important here is that we are now able to still remain experimentally consistent with all the experiments that have been done that are frequency-based or, or experiments or wavelength-based experiments, and now we're acknowledging them that they are scaling-based experiments, and we can evaluate them from the perspective of scaling versus believing they are translation types 
of experiments and then trying to explain the world as if a translation had occurred. Again, if you only have one type of transformation and you don't distinguish between scaling and translation, you might not know that you're supposed to, that they're answering different things. But because we make a distinction between scaling and translation, we know that we're answering two different questions, that the experiments can be explained in another way. So our last slide today presents a summary of the key models. And I think that this is an, a, a nice slide. After I put it together, I thought, wow, this, this, it's a little dense, but it does explain a lot of things. So the first section talks about transformations. So when we look at that, the Newtonian model, he, he, he expressed uh, changes in position, translation. He does not address wavelength. So when people say, oh, the Newtonian equations don't work for this set of experiments, they don't work for Michelson-Morley, they don't work for Ives Stillwell, exactly, they won't because they're not scaling types of, of, of trans transformations and you're doing a scaling type of experiment. So of course the Newtonian equations won't work. It's the wrong, you're using the wrong tool. Let's look at Michelson and Morley. So Michelson and Morley, while they don't have their own theory, they do have math in, in, in their model and, and you're able to glean what they were trying to do. So they did not say that position was changing. They were looking for changes in wavelength. However, they were on the bleeding edge of our understanding of wavelength and frequencies and all the things that we know now where we ha are standardized around Hertz, for example. They didn't have that as a standard. So we have the advantage of having a little bit more information than, than they had, which means we have an advantage of knowing that we're dealing with rates when we talk about wavelength and frequency, which is something that they did not understand. They treated it as if it was a static number, static length or static count, and that meant that their answers didn't come out right. So, um, so that's why on the bottom where I say mathematics for, for accuracy, it's poor because they just added things together and didn't take into account that they were dealing with rates. Lorenz came along and tried to explain the null result of Michelson and Morley. He did a lot of things very similar, um, but he also didn't capture the fact that they're dealing with rates. So he offered a different type of fix. He basically scaled things with what I call normalization. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, that's it's, it's covered in many of the previous podcasts and videos, so I won't go into it here. But they basically uh, normalized it as a means of correcting the math, and as a result, came up with this concept of length contraction. And that was his expla explanation of why he needed that normalization step. Okay, it makes sense, and he was able to get some good results. But as we've shown in earlier talks, um, it's good, but even with that, it still doesn't explain uh, how, it still doesn't produce a null result for Michelson and Morley. And so Einstein comes along, and he does something even more um, interesting, which we've walked through, which is he comes up with scaling equations, but he thinks he's talking about translation equations. And because of that, everyone feels that Einstein's equations are now a replacement for Newton's equations, but not recognizing that they're dealing with wavelength. And so in order, because Einstein says frequency doesn't change as one of his key postulates, um, you still have to explain that. And he does that through time dilation, which we've talked about here. He uses essentially the same math as Lorenz. And again, as we've shown, it uh, doesn't statistically um, give us the right results for Michelson-Morley. It's good, it's better for eyes still well, but it's not statistically supported for Michelson-Morley. 
Now we look at the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems, and we can see that we make a distinction between position-based or translation transformations, and we also look at wavelength-based or scaling transformations. So we acknowledge that both play a role because they're answering different things. And because we know they're answering different things, we're in a position to say frequency has varied. And because we say frequency has varied, that's our explanation. We don't need time dilation and we don't need length contraction. Okay, so we've explained it by saying our frequency changes. That's a key difference between the various models. Um, conceptually, they're all bidirectional, which we've talked about in earlier episodes. Mathematically, what's different? As we've talked about today, we're taking averages. And by taking averages, we're taking rate into account when we talk about wavelength transformations. That's key. And what that has done is when we look at some of the experiments, Michelson-Morley or Ive Stillwell, we get better, quantitatively better results than Lorenz or Einstein. So something to think about as you look at the various moving systems models. So I think today, you know, the key things I wanted to cover was to leave you with an understanding of moving systems models. And in order to do that, we needed to talk about rates as they apply to wavelength and frequency. And we needed to talk about specific types of transformations, most notably uh, translation and scaling, although we also introduced rotation. All of those come into play. With that understanding, you're able to see what Lorenz did, what Einstein did, and what the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems did. And with that understanding, you can see how one would conclude, if you go down the exact same path that Einstein went down, how one might conclude time dilation. And if you go down the exact same path that Lorenz went down, how one might conclude length contraction. I mean, it, it just follows if you uh, do some of the assumptions or don't treat some of the, the operations um, in, in the right way. So in terms of a summary, a uh, couple of things to, to note. We have non-oscillating phenomena. That's what I'm calling measure. And when we look at that, we're going to use translation transformations, i.e. the Newtonian model. And when you look at Einstein's work and you're reading his paper, this is what he'll, he refers to anything that's static as a stationary rod. Now, the, the next thing that we look at is something that's oscillating or something that is a rate. And this is when we use our scaling transformations. Both Einstein and Lorenz um, do this. However, keep in mind, they're assuming that frequency is fixed. The model of, of complete and incomplete coordinate systems does this, and it allows frequency. We, we recognize that frequency is, in fact, what has changed. So a couple of things to note there. And if you're looking at Einstein's paper, again, when he talks about wavelength, that's what he uses as moving rods. So just those two things, when you, that understanding of what is a stationary rod and what is a moving rod, when you go back and reread his work, hopefully a few more things will fall into place. So, and, and the last part there about the complete and incomplete coordinate systems, I think we've already covered, so I'm not going to hit on that again. Um, one last note, if you are interested in learning more about wavelength and frequency, there's a number of books out there. There are, uh, it's covered by a number of physics, introductory physics books. I think any good book on antenna theory or um, radio transmitters and receivers, any good book like that will, will have... Uh, information on wavelength and frequency. A good one that you can probably get in your local library is the Amateur Radio Relay League Radio Handbook. Uh, quite a thick book, but it will cover all of this stuff. So um, there's a lot of places that you can go. And again, if you're looking for information on geometric transformations, there's places I've already pointed you for that too. 
So this brings us to the end of episode 19. I want to thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you joining me. Uh, definitely, I look forward to hearing your feedback and reading your comments. And uh, I, I look forward to also your continuing to share and spread the word with your friends and colleagues. This episode is copyright 2009 by Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com. And I look forward to catching you in the next podcast and video. Until then, be well.